Morning. Uh, before I read our scripture reading, I've got another another little deal here I'm going to read to you. Uh, I think I told you here a few weeks ago about this hometown paper of mine. comes out once a month, and it's not very politically correct, which just tickles me plum to death. But uh, this deal's entitled Saying Grace. Now, a visiting pastor was attending a men's breakfast in farm country. He asked one of the impressive older farmers in attendance to say grace that morning. And after all were seated, the older farmer began. He said, Dear Lord, I hate buttermilk. Pastor opened one eye and wondered to himself where this was going. Then the farmer loudly proclaimed, And Lord, I really hate lard. Now the pastor's getting worried. However, without missing a beat, the farmer praised on. And Lord, you know I don't much care for raw white flour. And just as the pastor thought he should stand up and stop everything, the farmer continued. But Lord, when you mix them all together and bake them up, I sure do love fresh fresh biscuits. So Lord, when things come up we don't like, when life gets hard and we just don't understand what you're saying to us, we just need to relax and wait till you're done mixing. And probably... It'll even be something better than biscuits. Amen. (laughs) Our scripture reading this morning is in Luke 3, verse 21 to the end of the chapter. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about thirty years of age being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maeth, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Semei, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Josie, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, 
the son of Malia, the son of Minan, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Father God, I want to thank you for the words you put in your book that we can know, we can know your heart. I know that every word that you put in there, sometimes things like these genealogies are kind of hard to read. And I know I've skipped over them in the past, Lord. But you put them there for a reason. And I ask, please, that you let your Holy Spirit come and fill our hearts and our minds. Today, as Pastor Jackie explains your word, and let your Holy Spirit show us why you have these genealogies here. Father God, you're so good. Um, just praise be your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And, and, and some of the purpose behind that. The reason why Jesus was baptized. Why, why did he go through this? Uh, then we're going to take a look at the revelation from heaven as the uh, Holy Spirit descends and the Father spoke. And then finally we'll look at how all that relates to the genealogy that we, uh, that we just looked at. So I want you to, to get a little more background on what Luke gives us. So we're going to look over in the Gospel of Matthew real quick. Matthew chapter 3, we'll take a look at a couple of verses just so you can see some of the interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 13 it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So we have Jesus growing up in the Galilee. You remember that 
Elizabeth and Mary, they, they visited one another. When the, when the babies were in the womb, John the Baptist leapt, right? When he was in the presence of, uh, of the Messiah, he, he, the baby leapt in the womb. Elizabeth understood <coughs> what that was all about. But I also want you to realize that these, then these children spend the rest of their childhood growing up apart. So John the Baptist is going to grow up as the family of a priest. Um, and there's going to be a break at some point because John the Baptist doesn't follow in the priesthood. Right? He's a prophet. And so maybe there's some, some tension within the family uh, at the call that God has on the life of John the Baptist and, uh, and, and the choices that he makes. Because ultimately we find him in the wilderness. Right? Not, he's not in Jerusalem He's, he's down in the, the Jordanian wilderness, which, by the way, uh, baptizing in the same area that the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Which is all kind of interesting when you have the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ in the exact same place. So there's John the Baptist is down there. Now, Jesus, when he was an infant, remember, his family, they flee away from Herod. Herod's going to kill all the babies in Jerusalem. Remember, two years and old and younger. So they're going to flee to Egypt. God's going to warn Joseph in a dream. Joseph takes his family to Egypt. And they're in Egypt until they hear later on of Herod's death. Then when they return, they don't come back to Bethlehem. They come back to Nazareth in the Galilee so you're talking about 70, 80 miles separation. Back in those days, nobody had cell phones. Guys, hard to understand, I know. but So you couldn't just shoot your cousin a text. And there probably was a few times they got together. Last time we talked about when Jesus was 12, he went to Jerusalem. Families probably got together at those times when they would come into Jerusalem. <laughs> but otherwise, they grew up apart. And then there's a moment. The Bible talks about things that we should probably try to visualize for ourselves. The Bible talks about appointed times. In the Old Testament, there were several feast days. And those feast days were called appointed times. They were specific moments. Times of celebration that helped people remember events that God had done in their past. But as we consider that, we also need to realize there are appointed times for you and I. There was an appointed time for Christ, and there was this appointed time. This baptism that we are taking a look at this morning was an appointed time. So at that moment, at that right time, Jesus, he's going to walk those 70, 80 miles. <laughs> he's going to come out into the Jordanian uh, wilderness, out into the desert. To the place where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, where John is baptizing. And he came for a purpose, to be baptized by him. If we look at Matthew 3.14, it says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So the first response we see of John, remember earlier in, in Luke 3.16, we talked about this idea. John was telling the people about who he was, and he said, I baptize you with water, but there's one mightier than I who is coming. The, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we discussed that. The Holy Spirit is the baptism unto salvation, and fire is the baptism of judgment. Jesus is the dividing line. 
Jesus, with Jesus, you're either in or you're out. Either for Him or against Him, right? The, the, he is the pivotal point of history. And so, John, recognizing this, now when Jesus comes, He says, whoa, I need... Okay, he's saying, I have a need. I need to be baptized by you. I need that baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit that Jesus came to give, right? That, that spoke of salvation. But Jesus responds to him in Matthew 3.15. Jesus answered him and said, let it be so now. So that's appointed time. This is the day. This is the moment. This is the beginning so let it be. This, this is what we're going to do. <coughs> this is what we're going to do now. For thus it is fitting. Now here's what I want you to notice. Jesus didn't say, I need to be baptized by you. John's baptism was what? A baptism of repentance. People preparing their hearts for the, for the coming of the Lord. When, when we're going to see in the next several chapters, Jesus go out and preach, and thousands of people come to him, that's John the Baptist's preparation. That's John the Baptist making the way straight. That's John the Baptist preparing the hearts of the people to hear the message of Messiah. That was his work that he had come to do. But the scripture says, For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The next thing I want you to notice, he said, for us. There was something about this baptism that fulfilled all righteousness, not just on Jesus' part. He says, for us, you and me, John, we have a purpose. There's an appointed time, there's a moment that, that we're going to be a part of here that is important. And this is a big part of the point of the reason for his coming and being baptized there together with John. So when we look... <clears throat> John says, I need what you're offering, Jesus. I need what you have. Jesus is saying, but permit it now because we have to fulfill an appointed time. This is the time. There's a time, a moment that is about to be kicked off, John, and you and I are a part of that. Prophetically, they were a part of what was going on. In, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, 29 to 34, we get a little bit of an insight into what was going on in the heart of John, how John was going to recognize Messiah. Let's take a look at it. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He said, This is he of whom I said, After me a man is coming, who is before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And so John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. One of the things we're going to see about this, this concept is John is saying, man, I, I know Jesus is the one, and, and we're going to see this morning the Spirit descending on him like a dove. But the other thing that the Spirit told John is he'll stay there. John, you're still going to see the Spirit on him. Immediately after Jesus comes and is baptized, in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke, where's he going to go? What's the next event? The temptation, right? He's going out for, to be tempted by the devil. He's going to go on a 40-day fast. 
And we're going to look at that uh, maybe next week. We'll see how far we get today. But, but we're going to take a look at that. And he's going to go out and he's going to be tempted. And then he's going to come back. And when he comes back, this gets us to that moment where John looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Why? Because I saw the Spirit descend upon him. He went into the wilderness for 40 days. He came back. Spirit's still on him. That's him. This is the one. He declares for all of Israel that some of the disciples are standing there. And the next thing you're going to see is Jesus calling the twelve, right? He's going to be calling the twelve, bringing together his disciples. So all of this hinges on this moment. So, so we have this as an appointed time. God has a purpose. God has a plan. He's, he is establishing the witness of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Messiah. He's establishing the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ all in this moment. But we also saw Jesus say something. He said, it is, it is fitting for us. What, what, is that, what, what does that mean? What is that all about? I'm going to take you on a little, a little mini journey of Jackie's study and, and what I do to try to figure out some of these things. So, I did a word study on this. It is fitting. Where else does it is fitting come up and what does it talk about when, when we see it? So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2 real quick. Hebrews chapter 2, 9 to 11. You remember this? We just went through Hebrews not that long ago. It says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is, why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Scripture says in this case, it was fitting. What was fitting? It was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, working out this plan of salvation, would make the founder of our salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. Make him complete. Make him complete as what? What is it that he is fulfilling? Why is it fitting? What is he fulfilling for us? In verse 17, he gives us a summation. He says, therefore, he had to be made, same phrase, by the way, as it was fitting, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation, substitute sacrifice. To make a substitute sacrifice for the sins of the people. For he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. It is fitting that he would do this. Why? Because he has become our high priest. As our high priest, one of the roles, one of the parts of a high priest was his ability to intercede for men to God. One of the unique things that Jesus Christ brings into that equation is that He is 
God Himself. So He is able to place His hand in our hand and His hand in God's hand and bridge the gap that separates man from God, that gap of sin, through the sacrifice of His body so that there is a way for you and I to enter in through Jesus Christ. It is fitting. This is God's purpose. He's become our high priest. He will become perfect or complete through the things that He suffers. And His baptism was part of that. His baptism was part of that purpose and plan in identifying Him with us. Is that me? I'll stop moving. I won't. That's not true. Um, so, what I want you to understand is here we have Jesus Christ, this, this, this in- incredible, beautiful picture of the work. Do I need a trade? Okay. Lord, have mercy on my soul. Wow, I'm going to be special, Mike, now. Zippity-doo-dah. We'll see what happens. Okay. So, now, I, maybe I'm just supposed to leave this point go and just keep going. <clears throat> In Hebrews chapter 7, let me kind of bring around that, the, the full circle of what we're talking about, what he is fitting. It says in Hebrews seven twenty six and 27, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. When Jesus is baptized, he is being identified with sinners. Not identified as a sinner, identified with sinners. But part of the concept of the word baptizo is to be identified with. When you and I are baptized, we're baptized into the body of Christ. Into Him. We become, so we're being identified with Him, the body of Christ. He is our covering. And so we have this reality spoken for us in Romans chapter 6. So when we look at it, this, it is fitting, takes us through the idea of His high priesthood. It takes us through the idea that He's our substitute sacrifice. It takes us through the idea that He's being identified with us. So that He can offer comfort and peace. What do I mean? I mean, He's going to walk in our shoes. He's going to wear our shoes. There was a, a story I've shared with you before about a, <clears throat> a young priest that was all excited about his new ministry, right? And, and at one night he's out, it was a pretty good night, to, and he's just praising God, praying out loud, glorifying the Lord, and some shepherds heard him. And the shepherds say, what are you, what are you praying about? Why do you pray to God? He says, what are you talking about, man? God is, is he's our Lord. He's, he's with us. He's watching over us. He's taking care of us. And the shepherd just starts to laugh. What are you talking about? He says, I don't know. I, I, I don't know 
what, what, what your experience is, the shepherd says, but let me tell you what mine is. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm lonely. I'm a shepherd. Most people could care less who I am. Nobody really cares how I am or what's going on in my day. I'm probably going to die alone, just like I was born alone, and nobody's ever going to mourn for me. How is it that I'm supposed to relate to God? And at the moment, when he finishes his tirade with the priest, and the priest is left without an answer, he turns around and walks back in to the town of Bethlehem. And about that time, you could hear the sounds of a baby crying. Because that's exactly what God did, guys. He came and said, look, I'm, I'm not going to give you the ability to say to me as God, I don't know what it is to be you. I don't know what it is to be rejected, hated, hungry, thirsty, hunted. Instead, God would be able to say, no, I, I fully understand all of those things. So I can be a compassionate and faithful high priest for you. I can comfort you because I'm not saying to you, I don't know what that's like. I'm saying to you, I know what that's like. And to offer, to offer the hope that we have in Christ. So we see as we look at this, this it is fitting for us. It's a, kind of an important idea for us to nail down if we want to understand the purpose behind what's going on. Why is Jesus being baptized? He's identifying with us. Later on, they're going to say, you said of John the Baptist who touched no wine and, and ate nothing unclean and was very pious. You, you said he was crazy. And then Jesus said, the Son of Man come and I hang out with sinners and I'm doing these other things. And you say, oh, he's a wine-bibber. He's... You, you got one extreme you don't like and the other you don't like. So you don't like it either way. But what did Jesus say? I've come, I have come to seek and to save what? That which is lost. So where does he start? With the lost who are gathered in the wilderness, repenting in their hearts and saying, Lord, where are you? And then God comes, walks in the water with them, is baptized low beneath the water, and comes out. So the next thing we see is that revelation from heaven. Look, Luke chapter 3, 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were open. The Holy, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. First off, the heavens open. That doesn't happen all the time. It's only a few times in Scripture that it talks about that. Before the prophets, when the prophets were receiving a word from God, often it would say, and the heavens were open. Ezekiel 1.1 is one of those passages. The heavens were open, and Ezekiel receives a word from the Lord. When Stephen was dying, remember when he was being killed in Acts chapter 10? He said, I looked up into the heavens, and the heavens were open, and I see... Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father. 
preparing for Stephen to arrive home. So we see the heavens open. This is a sign throughout Scripture of something important. Something important is going on. What is it? The next thing we see is the Holy Spirit descending upon him in bodily form. So that means something was visible. Okay? <clears throat> something was visible. There was some way in which the descent of the Holy Spirit on the Jesus Christ was visible. There, there was something that was seen. Now, the way they describe it is like a dove. So we have doves. We have doves in church. There's one back there under the words. Yeah, there's one on here. All the, all the dove is is a symbol. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. It says he descended in bodily form like a dove. There's some similarity, metaphorically, there's some similarity between a dove and the Holy Spirit. And there's something that, that we should be able to hopefully glean from that. What is, why does he use that phrase? What is the importance of like a dove? Matthew 3.16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, <coughs> and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. Mark 1.10 And when he had come out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. John 1.32 John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. So I think it's interesting that he brings up this idea. What is it all about? What is it about a dove? And I think there's some specific things and. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1, somewhere around there. Uh, the, Solomon is singing to his love, says, you have dove's eyes. What does that mean? You got little bitty eyes? I don't, somehow I don't think that was the point, right? You have, you have your, your eyes are strangely small for your head? I don't think that was, that's what he's saying. One of the things that Jesus, when Jesus talked about doves, he said to you and I, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, harmless as doves, innocent as doves. All those are, depending on which translation, which Bible translation you have, are viable translations for the word used of the dove. So when we look at this idea of the dove, I think we ought to see gentleness. I think we ought to see harmlessness. I think we ought to see innocence. I think we ought to see peacefulness. All of that are, are symbolic, right? Of the dove, the idea of peace. Here's a couple things maybe we haven't thought of. We ought to think of faithfulness. I will never leave you or forsake you. Why? Because a dove never leaves his mate. Dove never leaves. Doves don't have divorce. They mate for life. And if one of the doves dies, then you end up with one. We, we have two doves. At, uh, every, uh, I try to remind myself that they're okay. Usually I shoot birds, but I'm trying not to shoot doves. They... Uh, they, they sit in the middle of my driveway. No, not currently, they're not there. But in springtime, when the weather was good, they sit in the middle of my driveway and fly away at the last second. 
before I run over them with the truck. It, it, it bothers me more when I'm on the bike because I'm usually having to move my head to miss the dove that's coming up off the ground. But they, they have nested together and they, they, have, they come back every year to it. So I think there's a point of faithfulness. And, th- and that really fits with Scripture, doesn't it? The idea that, that the Holy Spirit will never leave you or forsake you. That when the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a believer, the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a believer. And so we have this faithfulness, I think, that is pictured. The other thing that we see scripturally is the dove was a form of sacrifice for the poor. So who's Jesus hanging out with? The sinners. The poor. The outcasts. And what symbol is used for the Holy Spirit empowering him? Like a dove. That picture for the poor of, of, of sacrifice for them. Sacrifice for them. This idea seen in this picture like a dove. The other thing that we see not only in this, this picture like a dove, but the idea of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> in Psalm 45.7 It says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus was a fulfillment of scripture that talked about an anointed one. The way you say anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach. We would say Messiah. The idea, the way you would say Messiah in Greek is Christ. We've heard that, right? So when we look at Jesus as the Christ, it's not his last name. It's saying he's the one that fulfilled scripture. The Holy Spirit came down in bodily form and stayed with him. He's the anointed one. He's the one that God has chosen. He's the chosen one. He is the elect one, Jesus Christ. And all who are in Him, according to Ephesians chapter 1, are also, what? Elect, chosen. Why? Because they're in Him. And He is the chosen one, the elect one. (laughs) In Acts uh, 10.38, it says, speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, it says, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went around doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So this moment in time, this appointed time, was more than just Jesus identifying with sinners and more than just being able to put his hand in man and his hand with God, but it was also a visual symbol to the people He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. The Holy Spirit came, descended upon him, and remained. And it was something John the Baptist could see. It was something that people could notice and understand that were there at that moment to say, Messiah is here. John the Baptist's purpose was to do what? Point to Messiah, yeah? And here in this moment, at this time, you have Jesus, 
the Holy Spirit coming upon him like a dove, but you also have the voice of the Father, right? It says you have the proclamation of the Father. You are my beloved Son. In Greek, it's in the emphatic position. So I'm going to read it to you in English like it is in Greek, okay? So maybe it helps you get a little bit of an idea what it means by emphatic. In Greek, it goes like this. The Son of me... The beloved one. The idea is that no other person do I love like my son. My beloved one. This son of me. That I love. So we have this this idea. In fact, scripture goes on to say, Since he, God, the father, has given to us, His son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's given us the greatest possession, the greatest treasure of all the heavens. That's who Jesus is to the Father. He gave, he didn't didn't give the the slough offs. I I know when I first came to Calvary Chapel uh, Buell, I I came from Joshua Springs, and a lot of people were wondering, what, who is this guy? Why did they send him up here? Why they, they didn't want him down there no more, so they're going to shoo him off to... I know one of the... I don't see Jason. One of the things Jason said was he's like, I was pretty sure they were giving us the cast-offs. Like, well, they're just going to send... Gonna, somebody's got to go up there. We'll just send this loser. So, I, one of the things that I had opportunity to... To express was that wasn't the case. At at Joshua Springs, I was the golden child. I now it's not that way now, but at that time, I was the golden child. I had, I held the golden ticket, and it was hard for me to do anything wrong there. Everything I did, everybody loved. You know, I had to come to Buell to start doing wrong things. So. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not true. You guys know. But the, but the idea, right, that, that it, was, it was important for people here to understand that it wasn't a cast off. It was somebody that was treasured that was being sent. And, and that is a small, tiny, insignificant example to what it is like when we consider the prize given to us by the Father and the Son. This is that's what God is saying. So the, Luke is the one who tells us all the others say when he came up out of the water. Luke says it was when he was praying. So at some point after he came up out of the water, Jesus is praying, lifting up his his eyes to the heavens. The heavens open. The Spirit comes upon him, and the voice of the Father says, "This is my most prized possession in all the universe, and I love him." It's important for us to grasp, right? It's important for us to be able to lay hold of. And he says, I am in him or with you, I am well pleased. It's in the aorist tense. It means God is pleased to choose him. God was pleased to say, this is my... Oh, you're all right, brother. You can tell people love me now, right? No water? No. Uh, 
Um, this cold, you guys, don't get this thing. It's horrific. Uh, okay, side note, I'll get right back to where I was. Kathy has it now, so she's currently at home dying. She's not here. Merry Christmas. Uh, I don't know if she's going to make the Christmas party tonight. Probably not, because the last time I seen her, you trust me, you don't want her anywhere near where people are trying to have fun. So this morning, Joe's been really worried about her. So this morning, Kathy's on the couch coughing and sick, and Joe don't know what to do, you know. That's his mama, so he's prayed for her multiple times, so he decided to call 911. <laughs> so when I get home, I'm going to find out how that 911 call went. But uh, Kathy's like talking to... To taxi on the phone, trying to work out. Joe, Joe wasn't going anywhere today, so he's staying home with sick mom. And and uh, while she's on the phone with that, she hears Joe talking to someone on the phone. He's talking to the nine one one operator. She's like, "Oh Lord, have mercy on my soul." So I told Joe, "I'm really glad that you care enough to call nine one one for mom, but we probably shouldn't do that unless it's really bad." Not, uh, not this cold. It's pretty bad, but it's not, it's not that bad. So, <clears throat> so Dave heard the cry of my heart. Nine one one emergency. I need something to drink. So appreciate it. So as we as we look at it again, I just want you to see Second Peter one sixteen to twenty one. This idea of the Father being well pleased to choose Jesus to have this moment to declare it before all who were present. 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever introduced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter here is referencing the Mount of Transfiguration where the exact same thing occurs. The heavens open and the Lord speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said one more thing. Listen to him. Listen to him. And so the disciples had heard that. So we have this idea. I just want you to see, this is God's choice, the greatest gift that he ever had given to mankind on that day, at that moment, being identified with sinners, putting his hands in the hands of those who need saved, having his hand already in the hands of his Father, bridging the gap between us. This was that moment. This is that time. This is this this event that is taking place. And so we look at all of this and then, as we're building momentum in the story, we, we have genealogy. Well, that just seems a little weird, doesn't it? No? 
Do you guys do that? How many of your Christmas letters in the middle of telling what happened this last year? So this happened and this happened and this happened. And then, well, let me just remind you, I am the son of from this. And you laid out your family tree in your Christmas letter? No, you didn't? So whenever we come to Scripture, guys, and we see Scripture do something, we ought to say, there's a point. There's something that kind of coincides with what we're talking about that fits with this revelation from the Father to the Son, the giving of the Holy Spirit. It fits with the picture of John being told, this is the day, this is an appointed time. What's going on? What's the purpose? Why is this here? And it's not just to make us stumble over however many names are here. I haven't counted them. If we were in Matthew, I could give you a number. <clears throat> but in Luke, I, I haven't counted them. Matthew, I just happen to know it's 14 to, 14 from, 14 after. And so you have this perfect little idea, 14, 14, and 14. But when we look at, at Matthew, the genealogies are different. So what, what's the difference? Why, why, it starts the same way. Look at it. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, this was the day, was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed of Joseph. Isn't that an interesting way to start? If you'll notice, everywhere else, it's going to say, the, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janiah, the son of Joseph. Is he all the sons of? The sons of, the sons of, the sons of? That phrase, the son of, is not there before Joseph. And it's definitely not there in the original language. All it says is Joseph, as was supposed of Joseph. That's all it says. So there's some interesting things that we want to take a look, that we want to pull out of this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start at the end, just to, to make it different. I'm going to start at the end. Why am I going to start at the end? Well, it says... That he was the son of Adam, the son of God. Why does this genealogy go all the way back to the beginning? Why? Well, let's, let's consider this. Who's Luke's audience? Luke's audience are Gentiles. Gentiles aren't Jews. To Jews, genealogy is everything. To Gentiles, not so much so. So what is it that the writer, Luke, what is Luke trying to say to the people who are reading this when he goes all the way back to Adam? Who is the Christ for? John 3.16 says, For God so loved who? So if I go all the way back to Adam, what have I just said? Christ is for who? The world. He goes all the way back to the first son. He goes all the way back to the Son of God. All the way back. This is part of God's purpose for the world. For the world was lost. Yes? And so God chose His elect one, Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, the one upon whom the Holy Spirit descends and empowers. He chose Him to suffer. For it was fitting. It was fitting that He would be able to be our high priest. That He would bridge the gap between man and God. That He would be our intercessor. 
that He would be the one through whom salvation can be accomplished. All of this is seen as we look at this by Him going all the way back to Adam. When we go to Matthew, Matthew only goes back to Abraham. How come? Who's Matthew's audience? Matthew's audience is the Jews. When did they begin? At Abraham. Funny. So he does his genealogy only to who? Abraham. Because that's the beginning of the Jews. But Luke's audience is the Gentile. So who does he go back to? The very beginning. So he's saying, hey, this is the Messiah for the whole world. Matthew's genealogy, guys, is set up on 14s. You get a chance, go look at it. It's going to be 14 from, from this generation to that generation. I don't want to mess it up if I do it out of my mind. And then 14 from the next, and then 14 after. So you have all these 14s. And everybody goes, why? Why does Matthew have all these 14s? And, and just side note, when you do genealogy, guys, it's not a straight line. You understand? When a person did a genealogy... When he was listing a genealogy, there was a reason he was giving it to you. So he's picking particular names out of the genealogy, following the line that's telling you a story. Hey, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to emphasize something about this person that I'm pointing to. So Matthew, he does 14s, 14, 14, 14, 14. And we look at that and we say, wow, what's it? Matthew's writing to the Jew. Uh, what's Matthew's point? How does he present Christ? He presents Christ as the King. As a fulfillment of the promise, as a son of David, the King that was to come. David's name adds up to 14. So every time he uses 14, he's pointing to David, the King. Every time the next one says 14, what's he doing? Pointing to David, the King. And he says 14, pointing to David, the King. What's he saying? The Christ, the Messiah, he's the King, the Son of David. What was Matthew's point? What was he trying to get across to the Jewish people he was writing to? Jesus is the King. So that's why he emphasizes who he emphasizes in the genealogy. That's why it's different. There's another thing that's a little different from this we'll get to as we continue. But I just want you to see, okay, here, he's coming from the Son of God. Then he goes to the Son of Abraham. What is that saying to us? He is, Jesus Christ is, the promise to Abraham of a child. A child, Abraham, you, there will be a seed, singular, that's going to come through you. That seed was not his son. That seed is Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the promised seed, the Messiah. Then from Abraham it goes up through David. Why? Because he is the coming king. He is the coming king. Now again, when we look at Matthew, Matthew follows the line of David, but then it turns. These two go in different directions. These two genealogies cannot be for the same person. They can't be. They, they turn at King David. When they turn at King David, one goes through Solomon. That's Matthew. That's the kingly line. It goes through Solomon. But that's also the line that's cursed. Jeconiah is cursed by God. The kings were so wicked, God said, you know what? None of you are ever going to... No one from your line is ever going to be a king again. 
He cursed them. There was not, not a king from Israel again. Still not a king. But through Nathan, the line here, the genealogy of Luke, goes through Nathan. The Messiah was promised to be a son of David. But the king has to go through the Solomonic line. But how is Messiah going to fulfill those things? I think that's being touched on right here. That's being touched on. The idea that he is the coming king. But here's what I want you to see. The line he's in, in this genealogy, does not go through the kingly side. But it goes all the way back to David. So he doesn't have a legal claim to king from this side. Hold on to that. It goes from son of David. We go up. Then I want you to see in the beginning. We follow the son of David all the way up. Right before as supposed of Joseph, it says the son of Heli. You see it? If you go to Matthew... <coughs> That's not Joseph's dad. That's not his dad. His dad is not Healy. According to the Talmud, the one whose father was Healy is Mary. Now, hopefully I'm going to tell you why that's important. Just hold on to it. Okay, so this is Mary's dad, but why does it say as was supposed of Joseph? Let's bring it together, hopefully. So, <clears throat> what I want you to see is, Healy is Mary's dad. Now, this is what would occur if Mary was an only child. If Mary was an only child, she's the inheritor. She's the one that would inherit, because there's no son. So, her father would adopt Joseph when he married his daughter so that the inheritance to Mary would pass through him. So Joseph is adopted into Mary's family so that her inheritance can pass to her. This is Mary's genealogy. It starts with Joseph... Because it's what made her an heir to her parents. You go through the scriptures, you're going to hear about Jesus brothers, you're going to hear about all these other people, but what you're not going to hear about is Mary's brothers, or sisters, or relatives. So we have this, you have a link to Elizabeth, her, her aunt, but you don't have any... From her. So what is supposed is that this is the adoption of Joseph by Mary's parents. That's why they're different. You have Joseph by birth in Matthew going to the kingly line. You have Joseph by adoption in Luke. Because that made him heir to the family, Mary's family. That's why they're different. That's how they worked that out in their culture. So you have Mary's genealogy and Joseph's genealogy. Most time people don't explain why that is. So I'm trying to let you understand why, why, why would they put that? Why would suddenly would they change and, and focus on this? <laughs> so Jesus 
by birth is in the line of Mary. This one we're looking at right here that doesn't go to the kingly line. But when Jesus is born, what does Joseph do to him? He adopts him. And when he adopts him, the legal claim to king falls on him from Joseph's side. So he's not born in the line of the cursed kings. He's born in the other side, but he bridges that gap by adoption. How do you and I enter into a relationship with God Almighty? Don't we do it the same way? We're adopted into the family of God. We're adopted in the same things that we see throughout Scripture. We see at the birth of Christ. This same thing is being accomplished even here. That's why this father is different. It's Mary's dad. That's why the genealogies come at us from two different sides. (coughs) But then you have this idea. As was supposed... What did most people think? Who did Jesus belong to? Most of them thought it was Joseph, right? Isn't it interesting that Luke would put that in? Most people thought Joseph was his dad. For for posterity, I'm going to write that in a gospel. Most people thought Joseph was his dad, but we know Joseph wasn't his dad, right? He's virgin born. He's virgin born. The perfect, holy just Son of God, the greatest gift that God had in all of the heavens gifted to us, who on this precise day, at that right moment, he stood before John the Baptist, who had him identify with sinners, that saw the anointing of the Holy Spirit come upon him, which made him the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, prepared him for ministry, kicks it off with the 40 days in the wilderness temptation. He walks out, and then he's going to choose his disciples. It all begins right there. And all of that section of Scripture that we've looked at this morning all fits together to show us Jesus came for the whole world, the seed of Abraham, the king from David, He's not Joseph's son. He is of Mary, uh, uh, physically through Mary's side, legally through Joseph's side. That's how all the bridges, all, all the loose ends are connected. You ever feel like your life's got a lot of loose ends? Let me tell you, from God's view of your life, it doesn't have loose ends. All of your ends connect All of those things that I don't know why this or where that or how this. God is saying, look, in the life, in the the construction of the life of the gift of my son, all those pieces connect and they all had a purpose and they all had a reason. And he wants us to understand that all of ours do as well. Amen? Why don't you stand with me let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come to you this morning. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, for for things maybe that we never really understood coming out of your word about the birth of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to open your word, to study your word, to talk uh, about it, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in an understanding, even as Paul would pray that we might be filled with the knowledge, what is the height, the breadth, the width, the depth 
of the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we would recognize the beauty, the majesty, the treasure that is you. God, that we would value in this, this day when, when our eyes can be looking in a hundred different directions this season. But that we would realize the greatest treasure that could ever be held is the treasure of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Knowing Him. That He is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagi, the Messiah, the King. God, all of this fits together to point the way to Him. That whatever we're missing in life, whatever we lack, whatever we don't have, whatever empty spaces or spots are on our life, God, they, they are filled with Him. He is the becoming one. He becomes what I need. And I, know, I need to know that I need Him. I need to answer like John. When I see Jesus, I need you. I need your baptism. You don't need mine. I need yours. I need what you came to give. I need your forgiveness. I need your redemption. I need your propitiation, your substitute sacrifice for me. I need the, the bridge that you provide that helps me enter into the true reality of a relationship, not a religion. All of that is in the greatest gift ever given. And His name is Jesus. God, I pray that you would convict hearts this morning, drive men and women to seek you, to know you, to cry out for you. For your word declares that all who call upon my name shall be saved. God, I pray that we see you. That you are our need. And we need you. And God, I pray that we, when we have you, are moved, are driven to rejoice over what you have given. God, I pray... Prepare hearts, turn hearts, turn eyes, turn lives so that your church would rejoice in you, our Savior, as we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.